Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. I'm your host and narrator, Springheeled Jack, and we're going to get started today after just a few brief disclaimers. First of all, the show might offend you. If you're easily offended, please turn the show off and spare me the negative reviews on the podcast store or the iTunes store, whatever the fuck you call it, uh, because you won't like the show. This is your first and final warning. Second, I use advertisements in this show that I do not own the rights to. They are the creative property of Rockstar Games. That is all. Life isn't about money or your job. It's about having good friends, a nice car, and nailing as many women as possible. That's why I choose Bush Cologne. The name Cologne stems from the Roman Empress Agrippina, who would sleep with anyone. I know. I did. And I'll sleep with you, too. God, I love myself. I smell great. Bouche Cologne. Get your sperm swimming. In the game of checkers in life, sometimes you make the wrong move and get jumped. If you made the wrong move and need money fast, we're here to capitalize on that. Some people are destined to make the wrong move over and over again. It's okay. It's all right. What are possessions and life's treasures if you can't cash them in during a self-imposed crisis? At Abigo Brokerage and Pawn, we'll secure the funds you need for any collateral items you can get your hands on. Just bring in your stock, jewelry, electronics, munitions, dust, automobiles, power tools, home movies, children, exercise equipment, pets, coin collection, or your spleen, liver, or kidney, and we'll give you cash on the spot. After all, some habits are expensive. We don't need proof of ownership. We're about the most basic exchange. Goods for money. We'll buy anything, including your dignity. A Vigo Brokerage and Pond. All right, Spooky Squad, welcome back to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. As I said before, I am your host and narrator, spring Jack. For today's episode, you guys know that every once in a while I like doing something for the listeners. And today is one of those days. Today we're going to be talking about ghost stories from the Windy City, Chicago. Today's source material is a book called Chicago Haunts by, in true Chicago fashion, a woman named Ursula Bielski. Let's go ahead and get started. Chicago is the traditional homelands of the Hokok, Jairi, Nutachi, Baksaji, Kiyashi, Matichuwuk, and a whole bunch of other unpronounceable Native American tribes. Seated atop the Continental Divide, the Chicago region is located at the intersection of several great waterways, leading the area to become the site of travel and healing for many tribes. Chicago's first non-indigenous indigenous resident was a trader named Jean-Baptiste Pointe du Soublé, a free black man from Haiti whose father was a French sailor and whose mother was an African slave. He came here in the 1700s via the Mississippi River from New Orleans with his Native American wife, and their home stood at the mouth of the Chicago River. In 1803, the U.S. government built Fort Dearborn at what is now the corner of Michigan Avenue and Wacker Drive. It was destroyed in 1812, Fort Dearborn, and then rebuilt in 1816, and then pushed in the true style of our federal government in 1857. Incorporated as a city in 1837, Chicago was ideally situated to take advantage of the trading possibilities created by the nation's westward expansion. The completion of the Illinois and Michigan Canal in 1848 created a water link between the Great Lakes and the Mississippi River but the canal was soon rendered obsolete by railroads. Today, 50% of the U.S. rail freight continues to pass through Chicago, even as the city has become the nation's busiest aviation center thanks to O'Hare and Midway International Airports. 
As Chicago grew, its residents took heroic measures to keep pace. In the 1850s, they raised many of the streets five to eight feet to install a sewer system, and then raised the buildings as well. Unfortunately, the buildings, streets, and sidewalks were made out of wood, and most of them burned to the ground in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. The Chicago Fire Department Training Academy of DeCoven Street is on the site of the O'Leary property where the fire began. The Chicago Water Tower and Pumping Station at Michigan and Chicago Avenues are among the very few buildings to have survived the fire. However, Chicago rebuilt quickly. Much of the debris was dumped into Lake Michigan as a landfill, forming the underpinnings for what is now Grant Park, Millennium Park, and the Art Institute. Only 22, only 22 years later, Chicago celebrated its comeback by holding the World's Columbian Exposition in 1893 with its memorable White City. One of the exposition buildings was rebuilt to become the Museum of Science and Industry. Chicago refused to be discouraged even by the Great Depression. In 1933 and 34, the city held an equally successful Century of Progress exposition on Northerly Island. In the half-century following the Great Fire, waves of immigrants came to Chicago to take jobs in factories and meatpacking plants. Many poor workers and their family found help in settlement houses operated by Jane Addams and her followers. Her Hull House Museum is located on Halstead Street. Throughout their city's history, people from Chicago have demonstrated their ingenuity in matters large and small. The nation's first skyscraper, the 10-story steel-framed home insurance building, was built in 1884 at LaSalle and Adams Street and, once again, demolished in 1931. When residents were threatened by waterborne illness from sewage flowing into Lake Michigan, they reversed the Chicago River in 1900 to make it flow towards the Mississippi, which that is amazing to me. Some fun facts, and then we'll get started with scary stories, is Chicago was the birthplace of the refrigerated rail car, mail-order retailing, the car radio, the TV remote control, the first self-sustaining nuclear chain reaction ushering in the atomic age took place at the University of Chicago in 42, and the 1,451-foot Willis Tower, formerly known as the Sears Tower, was completed in 1974. And it was the tallest building in the world from 1974 to 1998. Fun facts. Now that you know a brief history about the city, let's get started with the scary shit. For more than 60 years, travelers along Archer Avenue have reported bizarre encounters with a single-minded young woman in a white dress and dancing, dancing shoes, who seems as real as can be until she proves herself decidedly otherwise. Mary first appeared to unsuspecting Southwest Side drivers in 1939 when late-night revelers complained to the police that a woman had tried to jump the running boards of their automobiles. A few years earlier, in 1936, the late Jerry Palace spent a whirlwind evening dancing with a lovely young woman at the now-demolished Liberty Grove Hall and Ballroom on Chicago's Southwest Side. When Palace offered her a ride home, she accepted directing him down Archer Avenue. In front of the gates of Resurrection Cemetery, the young woman said she had to leave him and that he could not follow her. She left the car, disappearing at the main gate. As dance hall encounters with the phantom partner multiplied, they seemed to move more southwest, centering on the old O. Henry Ballroom, which is now the Willowbrook Ballroom, on Archer Avenue, just south of the cemetery. It was here that Mary forged her reputation. Time and time again, young men would meet the moody young woman, share dances with her, and later describe her as cold, both physically and emotionally. After these dances, the girl would accept rides home, giving vague descriptions to her escorts to drive north along Archer Avenue. 
As their cars passed the gates of Resurrection Cemetery, the girl would most often simply disappear from the car. At still other times, drivers have watched a woman in a flowing white dress walk along the roadside and then vanish, as if switched off like a light. In some of the most harrowing incidents of all, the woman has been struck while bolting in front of moving cars. Bleeding in the road after these crashes, she has been known to dematerialize before or during approaches by would-be rescuers. Other Archer Avenue drivers have been surprised by a beautiful young woman who will simply open the car door and climb in, directing the driver to proceed up Archer Avenue, where she disappears in the usual way at the cemetery gates. Some bewildered drivers have even watched as she runs right through the locked gates and into the darkness beyond. Some researchers speculate that this mystery woman heads for one grave among the thousands at the 475-acre burial ground known as Resurrection Cemetery. Site number 9819, section MM, that of a young Polish woman, Mary Brigovi. Records indicate that Brigovi was killed in a car accident in 1934, allegedly on her way home from a dance at the O. Henry. But attempts to link this Mary with the resurrection legend have yielded far less than satisfactory results. The evidence begins with the following report, which appeared in the Chicago Tribune on March 11, 1934. Girl killed in crash, Miss Mary Brigovi, 21 years old, from Damon Avenue, was killed last night when the auto in which she was riding cracked up. Whatever the fuck that means. And uh, she suffered a possible skull fracture and is in the county hospital. John Thowell, age 25, driver of the car, and Miss Virginia Rosansky were shaken up and scratched. The scene of the accident is known to the police as a danger spot. Thowell told the police he did not see the L substructure. A close friend of Brigovi discovered in the mid-1980s that her late girlfriend's name was being connected with the famous Phantom. She went on to describe the fateful day of the accident to an understandably eager reporter. According to Vern Rutowski, who was interviewed by the Southtown Economist in January 22, 1984 edition, the two young women had planned to go shopping on March 10, 1934 near 47th Street. The girls accepted a ride to the popular shopping district from two young men who Brigovi had met, but Rutowski became irritated when the young men, who she remembered as wild boys. The girls left the men's car while still some distance from their destination, but not before Brigovi made a date for that night. On their way home, Brigovi criticized Rutowski's unfriendliness and her disapproval of Brigovi's taste in men. Nonetheless, Rutowski continued to express her dislike of their latest escorts and cautioned Brigovi about her plans for the evening. Determined, to keep her date, Brigovi left her girlfriend for the day and went home to Damon Avenue. Rutowski stayed home that Saturday night and was awakened the next morning by her mother, who informed Rutowski that Brigovi had been killed in a car accident in the loop sometime during the evening. Brigovi's parents would learn that although their daughter had been sitting in the back seat before the time of the accident, she was persuaded by her girlfriend to switch seats, since the latter was not getting along with the driver. Described by Rutowski as an agreeable and personable young woman, Brigovi was happy to oblige. To oblige. Because of that congeniality, she was thrown through the passenger window when the car struck one of the I-beams on the downtown elevated structure. Three days later, Mary's Polish and Czechoslovakian parents buried their daughter at Resurrections. Since Brigovi was killed in downtown Chicago, probably at Lake Street and Wacker Drive, it's highly doubtful that this Mary was on her way home from any southwest side ballroom, and most definitely not on the road outside the legendary cemetery. 
This Mary, according to the records of the Satala Funeral Home from which Bergovi was buried, was a factory worker who died in the ambulance on the way to the Iroquois Hospital, then on North Wacker Drive. And here's, we get in, here's where we get into uh, Polish make-em-up time. According to Rutowski, Bergovi loved to dance, but she also had short, dark hair, which is a far cry from the flaxen fantasy described through the years by Mary's various escorts. In addition, the late John Satala, the undertaker who pre- prepared Bergovi's body and once described Mary as a hell of a nice girl, remembered that the eternal attire was, in fact, an orchid-colored dress, not a white one. One thing I know, if I, when I peel the dress off of that beautiful, beautiful young corpse, she was wearing very colorful dress, very colorful. Old newspaper interviews with Satala suggest one obvious reason why Bergavi was pegged <laughs> as the famous phantom, despite having the wrong hair color and style, the wrong clothes, and regardless of her dying in the wrong place. Nearly 50 years ago, a caretaker at Resurrection phoned Satala and told him about a ghost that had been walking the cemetery grounds. In the caretaker's opinion, the ghost was Bergovi's. I would recognize that sweet, sweet Polish ass anywhere. Mm. Ultimately, the musing of that one man may have been responsible for the permanent matching of the two Marys in the local memory. Apparently, the social, social conditions of Bergovi's neighborhood were such that the pairing was instantly acceptable. The rumor was spread, and no one seemed to mind the dubious nature of the connection. Still, the transformation of Bergovi's ghost into a vanishing hitchhiker did not gain regional cultural prominence until much later. A general feeling exists that the neighborhood of old-timers knew of a phantom Bergovi long before the folklore of a distant Archer Avenue the folklore of distant Archer Avenue popularized the story, presumably according to the universal vanishing hitchhiker legends which we have talked about at length on this show. It is probable that Mary's peers picked up adults' talks about the ghosts of Bergovi in Resurrection Cemetery and began to elaborate upon the tale during their drives to and from the old O. Henry Far more compelling is the connection solidified through the rigorous research of Frank Andrzejczyk of Summit, Illinois, which matches the legendary lady to a wholly different entity. In August of 94, Andrzejczyk's brother mailed him an article which mentioned the southwest side's most famous phantom. Already familiar with the story, Frank became swiftly smitten with the tale, finding that a number, number of his fellow parishioners at Summit St. Joseph's Catholic Church had more than a nodding acquaintance with the local legend. In assembling his impressive dossier on the elusive Mary Andreshevich accumulated many opinions of the phantom's earthly identity, relying heavily on recollections of his cousin, Mary Nagodi, and the keen memory of John Poljak Sr., the Slovenian emigrant, retired prudential insurance manager, and St. Joseph parishioner. Frank waded through a variety of first- and second-hand accounts, newspaper articles, burial records, and photographs. He was astounded by the prominence of the legend in local lore and fascinated by the ability of so many individuals, including a number of his fellow parishioners, to place Mary in their own experience. One of these, Chester Jake Pallas, turned out to be the younger brother of the now-famous Jerry Pallas, who was supposed to have been Mary's first dance partner at Liberty, Liberty Grove Hall and Ballroom in Brighton Park in 1936. According to Jake, the younger brother, Jerry had been a passenger in his friend's car when the pair took Mary home that remarkable evening, and she disappeared en route to the address she had given as her home. Though he recites the story with ease, Jake himself has no comment on his brother's tale, refusing to express either disbelief or belief in the story. Claire and Mark Rudnicki, 
friends, neighbors, and former St. Joseph's parishioners told Andrzejczyk that Resurrection Mary could be traced to the 1940s when a young Polish girl crashed near Resurrection Cemetery at around 1.21 a.m. after she took the family car to visit her boyfriend in Willow Springs. According to this version of the story, the girl was buried in a term grave at Resurrection. Appropriately, Andrzejczyk wonders why a couple that owned a car in the 1940s would need to bury their daughter in a term grave. Adding to the explanations is another parishioner, Ray Van Ort, who tells how he and his bride-to-be were the first witnesses at the scene of the accident on Archer Avenue in 1936 when a black Model A sedan collided with a wide-bed farm truck at 1.30 a.m. According to Van Ort, of the two couples in the car, only one person survived, a girl who was badly hurt. Both men and another girl perished. Today, Van Ort is convinced that this was the accident that killed our would-be Resurrection Mary. Still, another Polish parishioner claims that the wayward wraith was, in life, Mary Miskowski of the Southside Chicago neighborhood of Bridgeport. In this narrative, Ms. Kowski was killed crossing the street in late October in the 1930s on her way to a Halloween party. After pondering the variety of accounts, combing early editions of the local papers, and checking with funeral directors at cemetery managers, Andrzejczyk came to believe that the ghost known as Resurrection Mary is the spiritual counterpart of the youngest of all the candidates. A 12-year-old girl named, surprisingly, Anna Norkis? <laughs> Born in Cicero, Illinois in 1914, Norkis was given the name of Anna, Lithuanian for Anne. In that era, it was not the custom to christen infants with two names, but after 1918, children were baptized with a Christian name and a historic name to further pride on their main country. As a young girl, Anna's devotion to the Blessed Mother led her to begin using the name Marija, or Mary, as her middle name. By the time she neared her teenage years, Anna had grown into a vivacious young girl, blonde and slim. She loved to dance. And it was her relentless begging that convinced her father, August Sr., to take her to a dance hall for her 13th birthday. On the evening of July 20th, 1927, father and daughter set out from their Chicago home, for the famous O. Henry Ballroom, accompanied by August's friend, William Wisner, and Wisner's date. On their drive home, at approximately 1.30 a.m., the travelers passed Resurrection Cemetery via Archer Avenue, turning east on 71st Street and then north on Harlem to 67th. There, the car careened and dropped into an unseen 25-foot-deep railroad cut. Young Anna was killed instantly. After the accident, her father... August Norcus was subject to devastating verbal abuse, even being told that Anna's death had been God's punishment for allowing the girl to go dancing at such a young age. <laughs> Different time. In reality, the blame rested with the Chicago Streets Department, who had failed to post warning signs at the side of the cut. In fact, another death, that of Avin Levinsky, occurred at the same site the night after Anna died. Between July 28th and September 29th, an inquest was held at Sobieski's mortuary in the adjacent uh, city of Argo. Heading up the five sessions was Deputy Coroner Diedrich. The case reviewed by six jurors. The Deplaines News carried the story of the inquest. Mary Nagode described the sad procession that left the Norcus home on a certain Friday morning. First in line was Anna's older sister, Sophie, followed by her older brother, August Jr., the pastor, altar boys, and four-piece brass band preceded the casket. Born on a flatbed wagon with the pallbearers on each side, 
Relatives and friends followed the grim parade for three blocks to the doors of St. Joseph's in Summit, where Anna had made her first communion only a year before. Between the band and the priest walked a terrified Mary Nagode, a best friend of Anna's who had been pressed into service as a wreath-bearer. On summer vacation, Nagode was weeding on an asparagus farm in Willow Springs when she had a visitor. It was Gus Norcus, Anna's father or brother, asking her to participate in the funeral. Since Mary had made her first communion with Anna and owned a white dress. Jesus. When Mary returned home that evening, her mother informed her that she had accepted the request on her behalf. The girl was deeply dismayed at the proposition. Mrs. Nagode reminded her that her that her daughter reminded her daughter that refusal of such a request would be a sin against Roman Catholic moral living, which dictates that one must attend the burial of the dead. Anna was scheduled for burial in one of three newly purchased family lots at St. Casimir Cemetery, and it is here where Andreskovich found that the if that may have led to an infamous afterlife for Anna as Resurrection Mary, or as Anna called herself, Marija. Andreskovich Jesus Christ, <laughs> Andrzejewicz discovered that at the time of Anna's death, a man named Al Churis Jr., brother-in-law to Mary Nagode, lived across the road from the gates of Resurrection Cemetery in a large brick bungalow that still stands to this day. Al's father was in charge of the gravediggers and was given the house to live in as part of his pay. In the mid-1920s, gravedigging was hard, manual labor, rewarded with low pay. Yeah, and apparently a house, holy shit, and getting yoked. Strikes were common. They had gravedigger labor unions? Holy shit. Strikes were common. As Resurrection was one of the main Chicago cemeteries, the elder Churis was often sent to the cemeteries of striking gravediggers to secure the bodies of the unburied, returning to Resurrection with a corpse in a wooden box. Churis's duty was to bury it temporarily until the strike ended and the body could be permanently interred in its proper lot. Because of the poor coffin construction, however, and the lack of refrigeration, a body could not be kept long except in the ground. If the strike dragged on, identification at the time of relocation would be gruesomely difficult. Thus, for these reasons, Andrzejewicz decided that if the workers of St. Castamere were striking on that July morning of 1927, it's quite possible that young Anna Norcus was silently whisked away to a temporary interment at Resurrection, and that a rapid decomposition rendered her unidentifiable at the time when they exhumed her body. What was the result? A mislaid corpse and a most restless eternity, if one is willing to believe. Though not quite convinced, may be persuaded otherwise, or excuse me, those not quite convinced may be persuaded otherwise by a further bit of Frank's musings, this time connecting the otherworldly. Anna to the sneering specter seen on the road outside of the alleged resting place. The elder August Norcus followed his youngest child to St. Casimir 30 years after her death, a broken man, besieged by alcohol, and blamed to his grave for his daughter's demise. As Andrzejewicz reasons, it wouldn't take much else to make a ghost out of this ill-fated character, and yet, how much more there is, again, if only one was to believe in ghosts, if Anna was mistakenly buried away from her family. For here the stories merge almost too easily. The resulting image is classically and completely appealing. Resurrection Marija, combining the southwest suburbs for her kin, her father wandering the road outside her unknown destination, watching and waiting for his lost beloved daughter. Despite widespread belief in such scenarios, and the untiring work of devoted researchers like Frank Andrzejewicz, 
Specialists in modern folktales have utterly disregarded local attempts to trace Resurrection Mary to any earthly counterpart. Instead, many scholars explain Mary as merely a localized version of the widespread vanishing hitchhiker legend. These legends have passed from generation to generation throughout history, but the 20th century versions always follow a strikingly similar pattern. A hitchhiker, a young woman, is either picked up along a dark road or met at a dance, from where she's given a ride home. In the latter situation, her would-be suitor may report having danced with the young woman, finding her somewhat cold. In both situations, she gives her escort vague directions to her house, but along the way, she suddenly vanishes from the car. Sometimes the driver will have procured her address and proceeds at the house to ask whether or not the girl's returned safely home. Upon his arrival, he is told that the girl, whom he recognizes in a photograph displayed in the home, was previously killed in a car accident on the road or near the dance hall where she met her unfortunate escort. The Resurrection Mary stories bear an uncanny resemblance to these widespread tales that you can pretty much find anywhere you live. In fact, accounts of Mary by eyewitnesses have conformed to the universal model even more perfectly than do most secondhand legends. However, the existence of so many first-hand reports raise questions about the assertions that Mary is mere folklore. Typical is the following incident. Many years ago, several young men out for the night dancing and drinking met in an aloof but gorgeous young woman with whom they danced and tried to socialize. At the end of the evening, she asked for a ride home, squeezed into the front seat of the car with the driver and one of his friends, and sure enough, after directing the driver to head along Archer Avenue, she vanished from the car at the cemetery gates. After some deliberation, the young men, having earlier coaxed the girl's address out of her, decided to drive to her home in Chicago's back-of-the-yards neighborhood and see if she had turned up all right. True to the classic tale, they were promptly informed that the girl was dead, having been killed in an automobile accident some time before. Weary but wiser, they resolved to forget the whole incident and go on their way. Reports of Resurrection Mary increased significantly during the renovations of the cemetery in the 1970s. It was also around this time that the Phantom became more animated and adventurous. In 1973, Mary is believed to have shown up at least twice in one month at a far southwest side dance club in Harlow's, wearing a dress that looked like a faded wedding gown. A Harlow's manager described her as having big, spooly curls coming down from her high forehead. She was pale, like she'd powdered her face and body. Dancing alone in an off-the-wall fashion, she was as obvious as could be, yet despite bouncers at the door who carted all the guests, no one ever saw her come and leave. That same year at Shet's Melody Lounge, an annoyed cab driver bounded in asking about his fare, a young blonde woman. The manager gave him the only answer he had. A blonde woman never came in here. A number of years later, a driver happened to be passing the cemetery when he glimpsed a young woman standing on the other side of the gates, clutching the bars. Worried that somebody had been locked inside after closing, he hurried to report the incident to the local police, who hastened to rescue the reluctant prisoner. Upon their arrival, they found the cemetery deserted, but their inspection of the gates revealed a chilling spectacle. Not only had two of the par bars been pried apart, but the impression of a pair of delicate hands remained, bearing witness to the feminine touch that accomplished the task. When cemetery management saw the state of the bars, they reportedly called in the officials from the Archdiocese of Chicago, who allegedly removed the imprinted bars and whisked them away. Akin to stories of aliens and warehouses are local whisperings about the mysterious bars sitting today in some secret Archdiocesan storehouse. We have top men working on it. 
Not long after the removal of damaged bars, embarrassed cemetery officials installed what they called repaired bars, insisting that the bent bars had been welded back to normal and not, as many asserted, replaced with new ones. Still, though, some cemetery workers maintain that the bars were bent by a crew member's truck backing into the gates drunk. That would make sense to me. I'm just going to back up to the gate and turn around and I'll give you a ride home, okay? <laughs> the handprints were left by a worker's glove when he attempted to heat the bars with a blowtorch and bend them back into shape. In response to that, that claim, local believers say, yes, the cemetery tried to blowtorch and restore the bars to eradicate evidence of the spectral handprints, which witnesses continue to describe as well-defined fingers of a dainty female. Not the, uh, <laughs> the firm impression of a drunken Polish gravedigger. I'm just going to fix the bars, let me heat them up. Whatever the claim, the tale's undeniable fascination lies in the viewing the cemetery gates even to this day, as two strips of discolored metal remain in the exact spot which once bore the mysterious handprint. In fact, and there seems to be no reason to doubt the rumor, it's said that this part of the gate refuses to take either primer or paint. The result, an embarrassing but apparent, apparently ineradicable scar on the face of the cemetery and its management. As if this circus weren't enough for the cemetery to bear, it was also around this time that Mary began to experiment with new methods. Actually, folklorists have described a certain model of the phantom hitchhiker which is best termed uh, the spectral jaywalker. That is, the ghostly vision that walks or simply appears in front of a moving vehicle. Oh, my favorite. One such story tells of a justice police officer who called an ambulance after hitting a woman in a bloody white dress who was wandering the road in front of the cemetery. When the paramedics arrived on scene, there was no trace of the distressed woman. According to some stories, the officer in question went on a nationally syndicated television show called That's Incredible and told of his experience. Before doing so, he was warned that he would be fired if he did. <laughs> Notwithstanding the alleged threats, the officer told his story to network audiences and was at least, by local accounts, relieved of his duty. After a bizarre decade that seemed to mark the climax of her restlessness, Mary was back to her old tricks. Yet she didn't seem quite her old self. In 1989, on a blustery January day, a cab driver picked up a desolate young woman outside Old Willow Shopping Center. Despite the inclement weather, she wore a beautiful white party dress and patent leather dancing shoes. Climbing in front of the seat, she made it clear that she needed to get home, motioning the driver take off up Old Archer Avenue. But this time she behaved, behaved differently. She seemed confused, unable to give lucid answers to the cabbie's polite questions. Where are you going, you little bitch? Uh, I don't know. Finally, with all the clarity she could muster, the girl remarked, The, the snow came early this year. Then in front of a time-worn shack across the road from Resurrection Cemetery, the disoriented passenger ordered, Stop it here, disappearing without another sound. Also in the late 1980s, two teenage boys were driving along Archer Avenue at Christmas time when they saw a strange woman dancing down the road outside the cemetery fence. That just sounds like anywhere in Los Angeles now. They noted that the other passersby seemed totally unaware of her antics. In fact, they didn't seem to see her at all. Again, Los Angeles, modern time. <laughs> the teens reported the bizarre scene to their parents, who at once related to the famous tale of Resurrection Mary. Never having heard the story before, the boys must have questioned whether the off-the-wall vision they had seen was really the same as the legendary hitchhiker, whose aloof sophistication seemed wholly unbefitting the wacky wayfarer of their own experience. 
just some homeless woman fucking dancing around and shitting herself and the people walking by are just like, oh God, don't look at me. If I don't look at her, I don't fucking exist. Just keep walking, keep walking, looking away. God damn bitch. <laughs> what has happened to Mary in these last 25 years? A ghost hunter's classic summation would point to the disruption of the Bregovi grave during the cemetery renovations. Investigators might theorize that this disruption could have caused Mary's apparent disorientation. Possibly. For although the site of the grave was, was finally disclosed to the public after many years of secrecy, the plot turned out to be unmarked. Mary Bregovi was a term grave, a plot that was sold on a 25-year term during the 20s and 30s in the section of resurrection that was renovated during the 60s and 70s. It is therefore possible that the girl's family either did not purchase the grave, resulting in the filling in of the plot, or that they or the cemetery administration moved the grave to discourage the... There is one other peculiarity worth noting. Resurrection Mary has traditionally been connected with the O. Henry, a.k.a. Willowbrook Ballroom, where she is alleged to have danced during her lifetime and where she is guessed to have danced her last. Some accounts, however, specify that on the night of her death, Mary was at a dance for Christmas or even Advent, the Christian season preceding Christmas. The fact that so many Resurrection Mary encounters occur in December might seem to render this obscure lore somewhat more credible, although the timing would also undermine the connection to Mary Bregovi, who was killed on March 10th. Dealing only with conjecture about the behavior of ghosts, researchers continue to seek the Bregovi grave at Resurrection Cemetery in hopes of finding some end to a grueling but engaging search. Whoever Resurrection Mary is, and whenever she may materialize, the apparent changes in this legend's personality continue to present a nagging appeal to folklorists who have denied that Mary has any psychic reality, and who have accordingly classified her with other bizarre byproducts of oral tradition. With good reason. One, lost haunting, which is supposed, supposedly, uh, which supposedly occurred in the late 19th century at St. James Sag Cemetery at the southern end of Archer Avenue, Curiously, parallels the Resurrection Mary story. In fact, the two legends are a great number of specific elements, including the singular image of a woman in a white dress waiting for a ride in front of a dance hall on Archer Avenue. Ultimately, regardless of the temptation to give in to folkloric categorization of Mary, the primary difficulty remains. A good number of first-hand accounts of these encounters have been recorded. In the case of urban legends like that of the vanishing hitchhiker, the incidents are supposed to have occurred to a friend of a friend or somebody's boyfriend's mother's cousin and so on and so forth. If we accept the first-hand accounts of this hitchhiker at face value, the phenomenon of Resurrection Mary may continue to challenge the most skeptical observers and to lure out the most hopeful believers to her stomping grounds. Susan Sturzberg was one of the latter who decided to try to luck out at spotting the famed and filmy form. Her account is unique in this author's experience, as deserves retelling. I was out with a friend one night who had just bought a new car. I had not been to Archer Avenue and I was itching to go, so we decided to take a drive. First we stopped to see her boyfriend, who was playing in a band at a nearby suburban bar. We said hi, told him we were going for a drive, but did not tell him where. Sketchy. So we proceeded to Chet's Melody Lounge, talked to the regulars, played the Ballad of Resurrection Mary on the jukebox, and played some pool. We left in a couple of hours when 2 a.m. rolled around, drove to the cemetery gates, parked and peered in, seeing the repaired gates, and getting a good case of the creeps. On the way home, we joked about giving Mary a ride in the new car. Later that night, my friend Kristen 
dropped me off at my apartment, and went home to hers. As her new boyfriend Mike heard the car pull up, he peeked out of the window. Then, not wanting to appear worried and waiting up, he dropped the shade. Kristen let herself in and closed the door. Mike asked, where's Susan? Kristen told him that she dropped me off first. He asked, well, who was in the car with you? To this day, he swears that when he looked out the window, he saw a pale face look back from the passenger side of the front seat. Ooh, spooky. Despite such compelling accounts as this, and those detailed in the other stories that I read, the doubters stand fast. I stand fast, you're right. I'm a doubter. I'm standing fast. Among them are those extreme locals like Gail Ziemba, who lives across the road from Resurrection Cemetery. Easily summing up her 20 years' experience with the legendary ghost, Ziemba maintains, I've never seen anything. In response, believers would remind her that only men are privileged to see Resurrection Mary, although there have been cases in which a man and a woman traveling together have both reported a glimpse uh, of something that resembled her. And while neighbors like Ziemba continue to shake their heads at the legend, other neighbors at the cemetery have been pushed to reconsider their doubt. Early one morning in late summer of 1996, Chet Prusinski himself, owner of Chet's Moody Lounge, was backing out of his driveway when a man came rushing across the road, screaming that he needed a phone. He'd hit a woman on Archer Avenue and couldn't find the body. Attesting to his claim was a truck driver who had been driving behind him. He, too, had witnessed the gri grisly incident and remained at the horrific scene to testify on the woman's behalf. <laughs> Got ourselves a snitch. Krusinski agreed to call the police, but hastened to get, disengage himself from the whole affair, fearing that he would be accused of staging a publicity stunt for his bar. The accident, that was actually exactly what I was going to accuse him of. <laughs> the accident was quietly resolved, and little was made of the event. However, those who always take, take notes of such things took note. And of course, those who always laugh, laughed. <laughs> That's me laughing. Yet even those Southwest siders who discredit Resurrection Mary, know that much of what makes their culture special is wrapped up in the folds of her legendary white dress. And because of this, she is, even to non-believers, a priceless treasure. Just as she was fictionalized, just as she was to a fictionalized witness in Kenan Heise's novel. Something precious, whoever or whatever she is. To her I say, God bless you. And, uh, I found that song the Resurrection Mary song, and I'm going to play a little bit of it for you, because it's interesting. This man wishes that he was Rod Stewart so fucking bad I can taste it. But anyway, this is Ian Hunter, Resurrection Mary. In 1935, I was living in paradise. I had a friend up in Cicero. We used to go out to the track. We'd knock a few whiskeys back I'd lose my shirt And I would lose my way home I was driving my studs black hawk Through justice in the dark And suddenly The blood froze in my veins She was standing by the road In an incandescent glow My heart stood still my foot slammed on the brakes She said, please, please Would you dignify my wish I'm trying to get to heaven Could you tell me where that is On a wild 
Chicago night with a wind howling like I caught my first sight a resurrection Mary I was scared beyond belief After all my conscience ain't that clear I used to work for Mickey Finn I did the numbers for Big Jim Perhaps my day of reckoning lies here I said please, please I would dignify your wish But when it comes to heaven I'm just a little bit amateurish I know why Chicago night With a wind never tasted so good all right guys on that note i would like to encourage you to check out good cause crow rescue which is a bird rescue located in british columbia it's run by one of my regular listeners she does a great job she runs this rescue all by herself and she's currently uh she's currently doing a fundraiser on facebook you can find her facebook page or instagram by searching for good cause that's c-a-w-s the pun crow rescue she really does great work. I know a lot of you guys are animal lovers and not people lovers, and she is fantastic. She does a great, a great thing. And if you guys wanted to contribute to her, I think it would be very much appreciated. Hello? Uh, hey, it's me, Jonathan. I, I don't know a Jonathan. Yeah, that's the name they gave me at the orphanage after you put me up for adoption. How could you give me away? Bring the family together again. San Andreas Telephone, for those... Difficult conversations. One of the most popular and universal folk legends has localized itself and lived for a good part of the century in Chicago's Bridgeport neighborhood. 
home of the Daly family for generations, and still an unmoving landmark of old Chicago politics, social relations, architecture, and economics. Here on street corners and front stoops, in barber shops and beauty parlors, and in the ubiquitous corner tavern. Talk abounds, spanning many topics, many opinions, and many generations. Listeners will be engaged by the most amazing of memories, including those recalling one unforgettable neighborhood night, and that was the night the devil came to dance. Local traditions remember it on a Saturday night in an old ballroom just west of Loomis Street, once again on Archer Avenue. A young, unescorted woman became enchanted by a mysterious and dashing stranger whose acquaintance she had made on the dance floor. As they whirled to the music with the other local couples, the girl happened to glance at the exceptionally deft feet of her partner. Responding to her subsequent scream, the neighborhood men, assuming the stranger had made inappropriate advances, immediately pursued her her escort, who had quickly fled from the scene. When he was cornered near a second-floor window, the stranger alarmed the crowd by refusing to fight, instead leaping from the ledge to the pavement below. When the onlookers rushed to the window to observe his fate, they were amazed to discover that the man had landed squarely on his feet. As he bolted across Archer Avenue, the furious crowd rushed from the building and after the fugitive. Once outside, however, the onlookers discovered that the real reason for the young woman's scream was because embedded in the spot where the stranger had landed with a single but unmistakable hoofprint. The legend of the devil in the dance hall, according to folklore expert Jim Harold Brunvand, is a popular one in Mexican and Latin American traditions, as well as Polish communities. As with all folk legends, the versions are many, but the storyline is the same. A person at a dance, usually a young girl, dances with a charming stranger who who turns out to have horse's hooves or chicken claws. The Hispanic versions of the rather generic American perception of diabolic hooves. When the stranger's identity is thus discovered, he disappears in a puff of smoke, leaving only the smell of sulfur and an unconscious young woman as mementos. When he wrote The Vanishing Hitchhiker, the classic first volume on urban folk legends, Brunvand had found no evidence that this legend had made its way into Anglo-American culture. For over half a century, however, the testaments of Bridgeport residents have proven And in doing my due diligence with this episode, I was unable to find any pictures of said hoof prints embedded in the street, although I did look kind of hard. I spent two or three minutes searching, and I I didn't find anything, so uh, take that for what you will. But speaking of the devil, this one is also about the devil. And uh, we talked a little bit about Jane Addams earlier in the episode when I was giving my, my brief history of Chicago. And uh, we'll go more into depth with her in this one. I think you'll like it. As a champion of women's independence and founder of one of progressivism's most controversial institutions, much was asked of Jane Addams, most of which she was able to provide, which was shelter to the homeless, food to the hungry, encouragement to the hopeless, protection from abuse and injustice. But there came a brief period in her life of pioneering settlement houses when the needs of its many visitors became insatiable, when women began arriving there by the handful, demanding to see the devil baby. From the beginning, Adams was incensed by a rumor circulating through the the turn-of-the-century city that Hull House, her homeless shelter, was sheltering a horned and hoofed newborn with the blood of Satan in its veins. 
After a first group of women pushed through the front door demanding a look at the child, the parade of the curious appeared unstoppable. Each day for six weeks, women of every class and culture streamed into the settlement house, hoping to return home with a tale of the alleged incarnation. Each day, Adams turned them away with growing annoyance at what she saw as a pathetic oppression of immigrant women by their old-world superstitions and the contagion of emotion added to that aesthetic sociability, which impels any one of us to drag the entire household to the window when a procession comes down the street or a rainbow appears in the sky. Bewildered by the story's hold on the public imagination, yet unable to persuade the curious of the tale's falsehood, Adams resorted to private interviews with each of the older visitors. In the course of these sessions, she discovered a common quality of desperation among them. Listening with interest to their versions of the stories and the circumstances of their own lives, Adams, Adams became aware that the tale was serving a serious need, that of the exhausted, ignored, and forgotten women to be heard. By hastening to Hull House in search of the monstrous infant, they were rushing for a chance to win respect of their husbands, children, and neighbors, to seize the spotlight for a moment before slipping back into painful obscurity. Because the devil baby embodied an undeserved wrong to a poor mother whose tender child had been claimed by the forces of evil, his merely reputed presence had power to attract the whole house hundreds of women who had been humbled and or disgraced. It's intriguing that for each culture represented by these women, there seemed to be separate interpretations of the devil baby, but a moral, com but a moral common to them all. The father of the baby had been punished with the evil offspring for his ingratitude for the expected baby or mistreatment of his pregnant wife and her cultural traditions. Italian women described a young Catholic girl who had foolishly married an atheist. After she hung a portrait of the Blessed Virgin on their apartment wall, her husband ripped it down, proclaiming that he'd rather have the devil in his house than such a picture. And the devil baby was his punishment for that preference. A Jewish version described the sheepish mother of a handful of daughters and a heartless husband in search of a son. When his wife became pregnant again, the husband clearly announced his preference that she give birth to the devil before another girl. That bitter proclamation sealed the child's fate. Just as the causes of the catastrophe varied, so did descriptions of the resulting imp. Though most described a simple horned baby, the more animated narrators added a tail or hooves. Many told of how the child had been born blaspheming and cursing its parents with unimaginable languages. In other accounts, the child was fond of smoking cigars and laughing incessantly at its poor parents. Sounds like me as a kid. Finally, after struggling to control the damned thing, the fathers hopelessly took it to the heroine of Hull House, Jane Addams herself. Allegedly, Hull House workers had the baby taken to a local church for baptism, but it wriggled out of the priest's grasp and began to dance along the back pews. Unable to pacify the evil infant, Adams kept it locked under supervision in an upstairs room at Hull House, where, according to the mo to most later versions of the story, it eventually died. Oddly enough, though, one obscure version of the Devil Baby story ties it to the urban legend that I just read, known as the Devil in the Dance Hall, one incidence of which was alleged to have occurred in Bridgeport, a short distance from the Hull House. Some curiosity apparently arose as to whether the dashing and diabolical stranger who appeared in the crowd at the Bridgeport Dance Hall that night may have impregnated one of the young women at the dance. Man, he had a busy night, jumping off a building, dancing all night, impregnating bitches. Jesus Christ. Perhaps a Hull House resident, out for an evening of merriment, a welcome reprieve from the sadness of her everyday life. 
Believers in this connection point out the likelihood of such a lonely and searching woman to be charmed out by the sensibilities charmed out of her sensibilities by the reported and enchanting stranger of lore. Though most accounts of the devil baby story began at the end of Hull House, began and end at Hull House, others have speculated that the baby was taken out of the house and sent by the humanitarian Adams to a more isolated home. Perhaps even the Waukegan Retreat House, which he founded on the North Shore. Today, among believers in the existence of the so-called devil baby of Hull House, there continues a debate between those who believe the baby was just that, an earthly manifestation of a diabolical origin, and those convinced that the child was, sadly but simply, an ugly and terribly deformed infant brought to Hull House by a destitute mother. That would be my guess. Believers in the second likelihood also assume that the child either died at Hull House or was sent from public scrutiny to a quieter shelter outside the city. Whether or not a baby, the baby, whether or not a baby, deformed or demonic, was ever brought to Hull House, belief in the fact has remained fierce. The widespread popularity of the Hollywood film Rosemary's Baby, inspired by the Hull House story, has proven that the appeal of the tale is hardly provincial. Though local accounts persist of an evil little mug that glares out of the upstairs windows, as do reports of foggy upper windows and feelings of unease when you go in the house. Adding to the building's mystery have been a few self-styled ghost hunters whose photos of shadowy figures on the inside of the staircases are sometimes used to back up rumors of a woman's suicide having taken place in the upstairs room. During her lifetime, Adams did what she could to prevent this haunting of Hull House. Soon after the phenomenon, she seized the opportunity to proselytize on the wretched state of women's lives, sharing her visitor story with the readership of Atlantic Monthly in October 1916 and emphasizing her belief. This is what she said. The old women who came to visit the devil baby believed that the story would secure them a hearing at home. And as they prepared themselves with every detail of it, their old faces shone with timid satisfaction. These days, as busloads of ghost hunters eyeball Hull House hoping for a glimpse of a gruesome little face, a misty window, or a filthy form on the staircase, Jane Addams must turn often in her grave, disgusted by the enduring appeal of a foul and fantastic fairy tale that she did her best to stomp on. Yet even the realistic progressivist was not altogether grounded in modern convictions. During her own administration of Hull House, Adams engaged in at least one superstition of her own, placing pails of water in the attic to keep the ghosts away. Interesting. I love my kids more than anything. Which is why mom keeps me clinically obese, so I won't run away. That's where Kate comes in. My sister's son got to 18 and just ran away. She was brokenhearted. Now me and little Joshua celebrate every day with cake. He's my number one and he knows it. Now he's not running anywhere. Why not celebrate with cake every day? Celebrate cake. In the early 1970s, Old Town resident Arlene Zock was interviewed by the Chicago Tribune regarding her experiences as a past resident of two of that neighborhood's many haunted private homes. Although her own experiences in those homes had at times been quite unnerving, Arlene maintained that the scariest ghost, or whatever it was, that I've heard about is the one that walked into St. Michael's Church. I'm beginning to think that these Chicago priests just have a thing for women with hooves, or men with hooves, or little boys with hooves, whatever. For at least the past 25 years, rumors have passed from neighborhood to neighborhood about a horrifying incident that occurred at St. Michael's Catholic Church on Cleveland Avenue in the Old Town section of Chicago's north side. 
According to Miss Zox's 1973 account, the tale was told of late Father Curly Miller, oh boy, who had done a number of exorcisms during Arlene's girlhood in St. Michael's Parish. One day, as the priest was leaving the church, he noticed an elderly woman following behind him. As he moved to open the heavy door to allow her passage, he saw that the woman was without feet, bearing instead a pair of hooves, classic evidence of the creature's diabolical origin. In later years, another episode reported, reported to have taken place at St. Michael's began to gain popularity. In this story, which circulated in that parish throughout the late 1980s, a hooded, hoofed figure was seen in the communion line at Sunday Mass, allegedly by several members of the congregation. This atrocious violation of communion protocol may be hard to grasp by non-Catholics. It made a dramatic impact, however, on the parishioners of St. Michael's. Even now, the story is possibly one of the least discussed of Chicago's supernatural legends. Echoing the opinions of Arlene Zock, the thought of it, especially to Catholics, is simply too unsettling. Where did these stories originate? Father Miller's early experience seems as legitimate a report as, uh, as they come, owing to his previous experience as an exorcist. Whether looking at his case from a spiritual or a psychological point of view, his vision at the rear of St. Michael's may certainly have been a demon coming back to haunt him. Or uh, a bit too much communion wine and PCP. Who knows? Possibly Father Miller's earlier experiences led him to some phenomenon akin to dubious theories of mass hallucinations. Alternately, the congregation present may have collectively interpreted an apparition in accordance with their specific belief system. Most rationally, someone at the Mass saw something, an oddly dressed congregant, maybe a disfigured or disabled communicant or the like, and subsequently convinced others present that they had all witnessed something evil. The final theory holds that some fraud was perpetrated on the community to perhaps mock the resident exorcist in the previous testimony. To shock the congregation or simply to spite the larger church. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. Seems like something, you know, I might do. <laughs> Today, St. Michael's is the church of choice for the upscale population that has almost thoroughly infiltrated the surrounding neighborhood. The adjoining high school has been turned into condominiums and hardly a trace of the old Catholicism remains to remind the young parishioners of the day when the role of the exorcist was an important one and when it was the exorcist lot to face some bizarre and potentially frightening realities. What Father Miller saw that day at St. Michael's remains a mystery. Whether later stories of related visions are truth-based is also unresolved, and that the rumors stubbornly remain, despite the parish's changing climate. However, it is a fact that the rumors remain, and they will continue to circulate for many years to come, is a distinct probability. Hmm. I don't believe a fucking word to that. If any of you guys have ever seen a hoofed person, please tell me about it. I'd be very interested in hearing your stories. Vinewood, the stars, fast sports cars, the hot nightclubs, success. It doesn't happen overnight, or does it? If you want to make it as an international film star, you have to start at the bottom. That's where we come in. At DreamMakers, we'll show you the path to success. Our Eastern European acting coaches will give you all the skills you need for auditioning in the entertainment industry. My name's Philip. I enjoy pretending to be other people. Dreammakers helped me succeed in that goal. After some intense acting lessons, now I perform each day for thousands of people at the Glory Hole theme park. 
I came to Dream Makers because I want to dance on Broadway. They taught me how to use my natural talents to succeed. Now I get to dance every night for money. I succeed one dollar at a time. I did it. I'm in entertainment. If you really want it, you know you have to pay top dollar for the best coaching and career advice. We'll help point you on the path to success. Um, I'm fat, boring, and have no ideas of my own. Perfect! Why not be a movie producer? I'm attractive, but I can hardly read, let alone act. You're gonna have to sleep your way to the top, starting now. For only $45,000, Dream Makers will have you on your way to success. Call today! On a similar note, have you guys ever wanted to host your own podcast? If so, I have exciting news. I'm expanding the Anthology of Horror podcast into a network, and I am signing subsidiary shows. I'm holding auditions from now until whenever I fill up the roster. So if you guys have an idea about a podcast that you'd like to host, a voiceover demo, and are willing to work, please don't hesitate to message me on Instagram. My profile is DukeLandis17. You will find me. Just go ahead and send me a message, and I will get back to you as soon as I can. This is going to be our last story for the evening. It's called Rumors of Evil, Satan, and the Forest Preserve District of Cook County. In the early 1970s, Father John J. Nicola, an expert of the paranormal and its relation to Catholicism and spirituality, spoke to the Chicago Tribune reporter about a huge increase in reports of supernatural phenomenon. Father Nicola felt that the surge was due largely to a massive trend by the youth towards satanically inspired culture. Oh my god, here we go. <laughs> Interestingly enough, Nicola was far from disturbed by this, claiming that there is naturally a greater frequency of so-called diabolical activity in places or times of great good. For example, during Christ's lifetime or during the Middle Ages when the cathedral builders were so fervently inspired to express devotion to God. Nicola may have observed the disturbing paranormal incidents occurring in 1970 Chicago with cool confidence, trusting the city's great concentration of religiously, as exhibited in his background of Native American spirituality or the faith of the tightly knit Roman Catholic parishes. Residents of the Chicago area, however, were often far from calm about newspaper reports of activities of local alleged satanic cults. Oh my God, can't see it, but I'm just doing the jerking off motion right now the involvement of teenagers in such activities, and the rumors of inexplicable phenomenon that seemed rooted in the diabolical. Cook County residents seemed to follow the lead of McHenry County when they cited satanic or other occult practices in explaining local paranormal activity. In that northerly county, the Stickney Mansion's poltergeist-like activity that began in the 1970s was also attributed by locals to its occupancy of devil worshippers in the 1960s. In Cook County, Bachelors Grove Cemetery was the extreme example of what many locals thought to be an interplay between deliberate satanic practice and the frighteningly uncontrollable phenomenon that it invited into people's lives. One writer suggested that the hooded apparitions reported within the cemetery confines were a product of diabolical summonings by inexperienced practitioners. Since such figures have only been seen since, the rumors of satanic activities began to circulate. In addition, many have reported a chanting chorus of voices that follows on the heels of visitors to the site, another phenomenon that seems to date only as far back as do the reports of demon worshipping. Chanting has been documented by visitors to at least two other sites in the Chicago area, both of which became established in local lore as ritualistic grounds for rumored Satanists. 
Simultaneously with Bachelor's Grove, but on the northwest side of the city, the Labach Woods Forest Preserve was beginning to earn a sinister reputation among teenagers as the meeting grounds of formidable yet unnamed satanic cults. Unnamed most likely because they don't exist. Just teenagers listening to Iron Maiden and drinking beers. Jesus. Accompanying these rumors have been documented discoveries of bodies found in the woods, sometimes hanged from trees. The ensuing murder cases have gone unsolved to this day. Alright, that's weird. Over the past 20 years, however, wanderers in these woods off Forest Avenue have reported an elusive chanting sound that seems to emanate from the surrounding trees. Such reports seem to have ebbed in recent years, returning the preserve to its pre-stigmatized status as a safe and serene recreational park. Further west, another preserve is fighting to regain its peaceful status. During the 1970s, at the aforementioned Camp Fort Dearborn, groups of Boy Scouts and other campers were disturbed to find makeshift stone altars, trees filled with nooses, and bizarre symbols scratched into the trees and rocks in the woods around their campsites. Oh, come on, man. That just sounds like a good time. That sounds like me in high school. Just edgelord supreme doing things just to shock people. At one evening gathering, dozens of Boy Scouts heard what sounded like a large group of chanting voices. The increasingly amplified whisper seemed to be surrounding the group, and then suddenly diminished. Because of these preserves are the stomping grounds of so many Chicago-area teenagers, it should not be surprising that a number of local youths have very definite ideas about the source of their infestation by paranormal presences, demonic or otherwise. One far Northwest Side 14-year-old named Chris Williams speaks with great sobriety of the activities known to have occurred at the various preserves in and around the city. With an authority obviously based on careful consideration of the subject matter, Williams expounds on his own theories regarding the mysteries of the Forest Preserve District. On the matter of the hooded figures reported at Bachelors Grove and other sites, Williams surmises that if occult groups have indeed practiced magic at these sites, perhaps the energy created a focused concentration of believers Somehow imprinted on the landscape, some of the images present in the rituals, much, of the camera, much like a camera imprints on real-time images of film. For example, if hooded garments were worn during these rituals, perhaps visitors to these sites occasionally view imprints of these hooded figures resonating off the ether. That's a pretty, pretty bold statement for a 14-year-old to come up with. Another of Williams' theories leans less towards the scientific and more towards the spiritual. Discussing the ancient belief in dryads, or tree spirits, Williams reasons that if in fact such entities exist, the density of trees in the district's preserve would allow for the existence and manifestation of more than a few of these blossoming spirits. Okay, so he's a Witcher fan too. Whether the paranormal phenomenon experienced by visitors to these preserves during the 1970s and after can be connected in some way to a cultist practice is, of course, up for debate. What is certain, however, is that at least for a time, the two are undeniably meshed in local perception. As for the question of the existence of dryads in the Forest Preserve District or elsewhere, only the trees, infinitely silent and secretive, hold the answer. And at least so far, the trees aren't talking much. Alright guys, on that note, I will leave you. Thank you very much for listening to a wonder, another wonderful and exciting episode. Remember, if you have a show idea that you'd like to pitch, an audition tape that you'd like to send me, please reach out on Instagram and just send me a message and I will get back to you and we can talk about where to send the demo tape or the show pitch. You can reach me 
by going to Instagram.com slash DukeLandis17. Once again, that is Instagram.com slash DukeLandis17. If you'd like to make a donation to the show, it would be much appreciated so that I can spend more time doing it and less time working. And you can do that by going to Patreon.com slash AnthologyofHorror. Thank you guys very much for the positive reviews and for sharing the show with your friends. We made another top ten list of best horror anthologies of all time or currently on the store. Uh, I think we're number three. So thank you guys. Might be four. Don't quote me on that. It's three or four. But still, that's pretty fucking good for being just a uh, podcast I started in my spare bedroom and have built over the years. And that was entirely possible because of listeners like you. So thank you very much. Please continue to share the show with your friends and tell people about it where you can. Thank you very much for listening, you guys. Until next time, stay spooky. Come on, baby, don't you move me, baby.